Chicago has 14 candidates running for mayor. Who are they, and why do they think they are the best candidate? That, and a story about the electronic tracking of rape kits. Go on, what Columbia looks like! This is what Columbia looks like! Published since 1973. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. This is Chronicle Headlines. I love this city. I love its people. It has endless potential to be the best city for everyone in every neighborhood. It's time to make the city work for everyone. This election is about the future of Chicago, and I believe in that future. I'm here doing what I've been doing all of my life, challenging those in power. Today, too many Chicagoans aren't sharing in the loop's prosperity. While City Hall tries to balance the budget on the backs of the taxpayers, families are falling behind. I have presented a comprehensive plan to address these concerns. The people of Chicago are entitled to a new, honest, and open government, and I will bring that. I'm running for mayor of Chicago because it's up to us to create the city we deserve. You are listening to election coverage brought to you by The Chronicle. Over the past couple weeks, Chronicle reporters Kendall Polidori, Knox Karanen, and Alexandra Yetter were able to get in contact with a majority of the 14 candidates running for mayor in Chicago's mayor's race. We asked them five questions, one of which is why they feel they are the best candidate in the race. Our first response is from Gary Chico, who was board president of CPS from 1995 to 2001. He has been board president of the Chicago Park District from 2007 to 2010, with his most recent government experience being a stint from 2011 to 2015 as the chair of Illinois State Board of Education. Chico previously ran for mayor in 2011 and gained 23.89% of the vote, the second most behind Rahm Emanuel. I think I bring the most experience both in terms of uh, where I've lived in the city, where I grew up, and what I've done professionally in, in government and in the business sector. Uh, I grew up, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan. I grew up on the southwest side. I've lived in about seven or eight neighborhoods of this city. And uh, I know this city and how it ticks. And that's very important for wherever the next mayor will be so that you can, be, you can relate to the issues and the places that affect the people of this city. Next, we have Bob Fioretti, who served as an alderman of the second ward from 2007 to 2015. Fioretti ran for mayor in 2015 and got 7.9% of the vote. That's the fourth most. Well, I have the experience, common sense, and I've been fighting for the uh, people of the city of Chicago, especially the working class people, uh, all my life. Uh, these candidates that are coming aboard now uh, are just finally adopting and embracing all of the reforms that I've been talking about for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, half of them criticized me and the other half uh, sat silently in the weeds and said nothing. And uh, I am surprised that all of a sudden these people are reformers. Our next response is from LaShawn Ford, who serves as an Illinois House of Representative for the 8th District. Ford has spent time as a social studies teacher and basketball coach for six years in the Chicago public school system. Oh, I, I think if running for the mayor of the city of Chicago, you it's time that we have someone that's willing to um, fight for working men and women in the city of Chicago. That's very important that we 
have someone that has the experience in government to um, tackle the problems that the city of Chicago uh, continue to have. So as a state representative for the last 12 years, many of the problems that we see in Chicago, the solutions and the fixes are in Springfield. John Kozlar is a University of Chicago grad who ran for alderman in 2011 and 2015. In 2015, Kozlar forced a runoff between him and alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson. So I am the best candidate because we have a tendency in Chicago of electing the same people over and over, mm -hmm. and nothing ever changes. So I am a candidate who is not tied to the past. And I'm also the youngest person to ever run in the history of Chicago for mayor. Okay. And I think it's time that we have the next generation get more involved in politics and actually have a seat at the table when it comes to making decisions because the future of Chicago is what we are going to be accustomed to. And I'd rather have somebody who's in a part of the next generation um, working with communities to make those decisions. We also have Susanna Mendoza, who is currently Illinois' controller and has served in that position since 2016. She has also spent 10 years in the Illinois House and was the candidate endorsed by the Chronicle. It's important that the people of Chicago elect a mayor who is battle-tested, uh, both on the financial side and how to get things done from a legislative standpoint, which will be a critical skill set to have as a mayoral candidate, our ability to get things done in Springfield. Um, that becomes so much more important, especially considering that we live in Donald Trump's America where we're not getting much of anything from the federal government. So there's a whole slew of experiences that I bring to the office of the mayor that have prepared me to lead the city towards the future. Our next candidate is Neil Salas Griffin, who teaches at Northwestern's McCormick School of Engineering, the Pritzker School of Law, and the University of Chicago. He is also the CEO of Code Now a national nonprofit that teaches low-income school children how to code. I see myself as someone that can contribute meaningfully in a way that is distinct from a lot of the other candidates, given my background. So I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and the experiences that I've been through and the things that I've struggled through are a lot of the same struggles that a lot of Chicagoans are facing right now. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're, they're looking for someone to relate to, to that pain and to those experiences. And there's no other candidate who's in the race who has that kind of experience. Paul Vallis has served as CEO of CPS and Philadelphia Public Schools. Vallis was also the superintendent of the Recovery School District in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Paul Vallis sent his answers in via email. And when asked why he was the best candidate, he said there is no candidate in the race with his experience in Illinois State Legislature where he worked for 12 years as the principal policy person to Senate President Phil Rock and as director of Illinois' Economic and Fiscal Commission. He also said his tenure as city budget director saw the creation of the city's first affordable housing program, community policing program, and the restoration of 70% of the city's streets and alleyways. He also said while in CPS, the city saw the largest school expansion program in the country, the largest after-school and summer programs in the country, and the largest and most successful minority and woman-owned business procurement program in the nation. Willie Wilson has previously run for mayor in 2011 and 2015. 
In 2015, Wilson got 10.7% of the vote, the third most. Wilson has previously owned a McDonald's, his own production company, Willie Wilson Productions, and Omar Medical Supplies. But Wilson has also been accused of trying to buy votes after handing out money at a Southside church. But the Board of Elections said this was not a rule violation. I'm honest. Uh, I, I'm using my own money, so I'm not bought by anybody. You, 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 you know, I, um, I don't, I'm not going to raise taxes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to open back up them, some of them schools, and we're going to cut the violence down by putting resources into the community. The following candidates did not respond to the Chronicle. Additional information on these candidates have been fact-checked from outside sources and their campaign website. Bill Daly is the former chief of staff to Barack Obama and is part of the Daly family, who has had his brother, Richard M. Daly, and his father, Richard J. Daly, both serve as mayor. Daly was endorsed by the Chicago Tribune. Amara Enya was the candidate endorsed by Chance the Rapper, Enya co-authored the book, Chicago Isn't Broke, Funding the City We Deserved, and she has also founded the Institute for Cooperative Economics and Economic Innovation. Enya did get in trouble for not reporting $21,000 she got for working as a consultant on Chris Kennedy's governor's campaign. Lori Lightfoot worked as a legislative aide for two years in Washington, D.C., She has also served as chair of the Police Accountability Task Force and was president of the Chicago Police Board. Lightfoot also spent time as the chief of staff and general counsel of the Chicago Office of Emergency Management and Communication. Lightfoot is the only openly gay candidate in the mayor's race and was endorsed by the Chicago Sun-Times. Gary McCarthy is the former CPD superintendent before he was fired by Rahm Emanuel over the way he handled the Laquan McDonald shooting. Before his time in CPD, McCarthy was a deputy commissioner for operations of NYPD. Jeremy Joyce Jr. attended law school at Yale before serving in Cook County State's Attorney Office. Joyce has served as a school board member at Marist High School and is a part of the Knights of Columbus, a men's group organized through the Catholic Church. Tony Preckwinkle has been the Cook County Board President since 2010. She has previously spent five terms as alderman for the 4th Ward and taught high school in Chicago for 10 years. For additional reporting on this story, including fun facts from the candidates, you can go to our website, columbiachronicle.com, or pick up an issue near you. That's all for this story, but stay tuned for more. Illinois moves forward with Rape Kit electronic tracking system to end backlog. I'm Kendall Polidori, staff reporter. And I'm Yasmin Shika, staff reporter. And today we have Alexandra Yetter to talk about her story. All right, Alexandra, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, so I've been working on the story for a couple months now. And it started when I found that there was this thing called Rape Kit Backlog, which is when sexual assault survivors put all of the physical evidence and all the DNA into this kit at healthcare providers. And the providers then send them to the police station and... A lot of police departments just don't send those kits anywhere for it to be tested. So people who are looking to have legal repercussions for the people who assault them just don't because they don't have any evidence. So I started digging some more and I found out that Governor Bruce Rauner, former governor, had a commission in place where Illinois representatives were looking for a way to end the backlog. And last week, or in early February, 
Representative Margo McDermott finally filed a bill which would put in place an electronic tracking system so sexual assault survivors could see where their kit is at each stage in the process. And where did you first find this story? Like, what drew you to it? I really like covering the Me Too movement right now. I do a lot of stories on that. So I was looking for the latest news in the movement in um, rape culture in sexual assault survivors, and I found backlog as a general thing. And I found out that Illinois was really progressive with it um, among all the states, so I just kept digging. In your story, you talk about the process behind examining a sexual assault victim with a rape kit, and you also quoted, I believe her name is Elise Necht, if I'm saying that correct? Ilsa Necht. Ilsa Necht, I'm sorry. The Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Joy Joyful Heart Foundation. Um, tell us a little bit about what she told you and what you learned from her. Yeah, so Ilsa mainly told me that the, the main problem with backlogs is the police departments because a lot of police officers don't have the training of what to, to do for the sexual assault survivors, how to handle the kits, and that's not necessarily on the officers. It's also on the lack of resources that Illinois has provided for departments. And also, uh, when police officers are looking at kits, there's thousands coming in. It's not just a couple dozen. There's thousands. And there's a bunch of different parts that go with the kits. They have to go to healthcare providers. They have to go to forensics. And then from there, they might be included in the actual investigation and then possibly in a court of law. So there's just so many moving parts that Elsa told me about that is really, there's a lot of causes for why backlog mm -hmm. is there. That sounds like a really long process. Did you find out how long that might take to go through? Yeah, so there's actually no mandated time that a person has to get their kit back in. So a lot of the advocates I spoke to want those kits to be back mandated in two to three years. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's been taking much longer than that so far. And would you say, just because I know that a lot of like victims don't always report Mm -hmm. um something that's happened do you think this could be a reason as well because yeah. it takes so long and they feel like you know really nothing is being done yeah absolutely I mean um one of the well when I spoke to representative Margot McDermott what she said to me was justice delayed is justice denied mm -hmm. so if you are already skeptical that you're not going to get justice and then you hear that it takes years you don't want to put yourself through that for years right. you want to just move past it Right, and you. She also mentioned that you quoted her in the article saying that the justice the justice system does not prioritize sexual assault. And what what exactly made made her say that? Would you say? Yeah. So, like I said, thousands of these kits are coming in, and there's also DNA kits for murders, assaults. It's not just sexual assault, although I did focus on sexual assault in this article. But, you know, when police are solving a murder, they want to get that done quickly. And sexual assault just isn't at the forefront of their minds most of the time, which is why those the murder kits just tend to go through the system much, much faster. With the murder kits, does it work in a different way, or how does it work compared to the ones for sexual assault? Um, the sexual assault ones, usually the survivors or the victims will go to a healthcare provider and get the DNA taken there by a, someone who's trained in, in 
um, making the kits for sexual assault victims. Oh, I understand. Whereas with murders, you know, police officers go to the scene, they collect the evidence, collect DNA, that sort of thing. So to me, this sounds like, obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, So I think that there's just so much a bigger story here. What else would you say could be done about this or could be talked about more? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So definitely this story at this point is just the bills on the table for House legislators. So obviously there could be a story about how the governor is going to react to it. Um, Juliana Stratton is actually, she used to be a big supporter of the bill. But I spoke to Representative McDermott and I also spoke to Polly Poskin, who is on the commission that was examining um, whether or not to use the tracking system. And both said that a really big problem besides the tracking system is the lack of resources for police departments. They need more money. They need more forensics employees who are looking at these kits. Um, They need to be able to outsource these kits more so that they can really reduce the turnaround time. Getting those kits back in ideally 90 days, but at most, you know, a year. And would you say then also like educating um, these police officers more about sexual assault? Mm -hmm. Um, I think now in our day and age, we're talking about it way more than we used to. Um, But would you say that there's clearly more that we could talk about and more that people could be doing? Yeah, I mean, before I even looked at the story, I I mean, I knew conceptually that there was a place that you put in your physical evidence and you send it somewhere if you're sexually assaulted. But I didn't know that there was any problems with those kits afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I think just even educating people, everyday people, like if this happens, this is what you do. This is the process. These are some of the problems. And then on the other side, like you said, like educating police officers on just prioritizing those. What was one thing that you learned while researching these rape kits that stuck out to you the most? The thing that really stuck with me is that a couple years ago, police officers just wouldn't send the kits because they didn't believe the women that they were investigating the cases for. Is that illegal? it's not actually because because um if a police officer thinks she's lying based on his evidence then he doesn't have to send that kid along right and that's a whole other issue that's just Mm -hmm. part of this whole thing which is sad because if you're looking at a murder case and you know you don't think that this evidence is important why would you go get it tested right and i think personally that you know, instead of, obviously murder is more severe and Mm -hmm. more um, important to get done fast. But I also think that, like, instead of pushing, like, a sexual assault aside, you know, we should definitely be putting them on the same platform and same pedestal. Like, Mm -hmm. exactly, it makes victims feel like they don't matter, you know? Mm -hmm. Also, um, the, the time it takes to go to the healthcare provider you know, DNA is only in your system for so long. I was going to ask, do you know um, how soon after, like, what's the time frame that somebody could do a rape kit? I believe it's within 24 hours, but I'd have to check that. Okay. It's it's short, though. So, you know, you, you just got sexually assaulted. The first thing on your mind isn't always, I need to go to a hospital and, right, and right. you know, have someone prod me after I was just, my body was just violated. Mm-hmm. Right. 
So the process from start to finish is already very gut-wrenching for victims. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they have to wait so long or, you know, forever to get this evidence back is just even more heart-wrenching. And I also think um, it's an important thing. Um, I think that we should be advocating for victims to do is these rape kits because, as we've seen in court cases, like, it is such a hard thing to prove Mm -hmm. that, you know— they were actually sexually assaulted if they aren't taking this extra step to do the rape kit to get the proof of it. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you have any perspective changes at all in any form, like with the police departments or like the actual rape kit itself or even the victims? Would you say that your perspective changed at all in a good or bad way? Definitely with the police. I started off thinking, you know, police suck. They're, they just want to throw us all under the bus but that's not necessarily true right they have limited resources they're working around the clock they're not just dealing with sexual assault cases they're dealing with a whole slew of things so they're not like consciously all trying to cover up sexual assault cases Mm -hmm. they do need those resources those extra resources from the illinois government so that they can do their job better and can help us all out. And we need to be advocates for helping them out so they can help us. Right. And I also see that that's been a problem lately. Like, as people are talking about um, these sexual assaults more, we're kind of, you know, pushing police officers or people who are in authority, like, under the bus, you know. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't be putting them all in the same category. Of course, there's some people that could be doing more, could be doing better, but... Yeah, I definitely think we should be talking about that, too. Mm. I think rape in itself is such a sensitive topic, so I really, like, applaud you for, like, doing all this research to Mm -hmm. write this story because it's a sensitive topic. Thank you. Um, So in your story, you obviously included statistics and stuff. So how did you go about obtaining those specific numbers? I went to the CPD website first because I know they have a lot of stats on crime rates and there's none on sexual assault. So I ended up having to file a FOIA request in November, I believe, and I did not get that answered until January. And what they told me in one sentence was that they have 3,580 kits, 3,224 of those have been tested, and 356 have not they say why not they haven't but one of the a another source that i had for background he did mention that they're working through them there again there's no time limit they just have to eventually get to them Mm -hmm. and so since the story took you so long this is just like a personal question how does it feel like working on something and wanting to get the answer so badly and having to just wait and like do you think about it like a lot and I do. I Even in my everyday, I'm always bringing it up and I'm thinking about it. And mm-hmm. also, like, I do feel like I have a personal connection to the story and my right. sources now because I've been – this is the longest I've ever worked on a story. But it is really cool to be a student reporter and do this in-depth reporting on things that really do matter right. and that people don't know a lot about that they should. Mm-hmm. So – were there any like were there any moments when you were like the story is going to fall through because nobody's going to talk to me but you were like dedicated to get it done yeah so the the illinois state police took a very long time getting back to me right we did not want to run a story that you know could skew bias 
but you know we just we waited it out we and then eventually we waited so long that it was no longer newsworthy and then coming back from winter break i happened to look on the illinois house government website and in their first week of being up up and running again um representative mcdermott had filed this bill so it was sort of like the story telling me to keep going Mm -hmm. and what do you think that as a reporter a story like this could do specifically for university you know like Mm -hmm. college students i think this is like a very new topic that people are talking about so what do you think this could do for students it's no secret that sexual assault and rape is very prevalent on college campuses so i think having this knowledge and and this in the information in the back of college students minds that there is some place to go and also within the me too movement college students are so interested in this information that they didn't know about before Mm -hmm. knowing that they should be speaking up and they should be demanding something Mm -hmm. well thank you so much alexandra for coming on today yeah thank you for having me we really appreciate it it was a great story and i think stories like this should really be written about more and more in-depth stories and more in-depth reporting. So I really applaud you for that one. You're really inspiring us right now. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for tuning into this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more in our print edition available on campus on our website, ColumbiaChronicle.com or additional coverage on social media. We are at CEC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of the staff of The Columbia Chronicle and WCRX, Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of the Chair of the Communication Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride, Chronicle Headlines is produced and hosted by Blaise Mesa, Kendo Polidori, and Yasmin Shika. We will see you all next week.